Uh, well, this morning we are uh, continuing on. We're actually kind of nearing the last part of our series, uh, looking at the end of the beginning. And uh, today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, so if you have a Bible and want to turn there, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, the, the verses we're going to go through will also be on the screen. Uh, so if you don't have your Bible, it's totally fine. But as we begin, uh, I want to I take you back to the year 1999, uh, a great year, right before, you know, the uh, year 2000 was coming. Uh, but in particular, what I want to take you back to is a movie that came out that year that I really loved. I loved it so much, uh, I brought uh, my wife Dawn uh, to see it. We were dating at the time. It was our third time dating. It was, it was the, the, the right time. We'd end up getting married. And maybe part of it was because of this great date we had uh, to see The Matrix. Do you remember that movie? Uh, in fact, I asked Dawn just yesterday, did you like that movie? She said no. Uh, she did not like that movie. It was not a great date. Um, and uh, maybe a lot of you don't like it. It's a, it's a sci-fi action uh, movie, you know, with uh, Keanu Reeves showing his fantastic uh, acting talent. And, um, and I really liked it, though, not just because of all of the visual effects and the action, but I loved it because of the idea that was at the center of the movie. Uh, it, was, it was an idea that I think resonates uh, with us today. It certainly did back then. And the idea was simply this, that, that there is something that is not right in the world. That, that even though everything feels normal, uh, everything is not as it should be. Now, in the movie, uh, the main character, Neo, he's, he's struggling with this, and there's a real reason for it, because, you know, there's evil machines who've taken over the planet. Uh, so that, that we can't quite identify with, but... But the thing that I think we can identify with is this sense that everything is not right. I mean, it, it feels like this is normal reality, and yet it's not, it's not the way that we would hope it should be. Uh, and that's not because of evil robots that have enslaved us, but it is because uh, we have been enslaved by an evil force. Uh, not something that's out there, but something that's in here. And of course, I'm, I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about the, the sin and disobedience, the reje rejection of God, all of these things, in fact, corrupted the reality that we now experience. And so when you think of Adam and Eve in the garden eating that fruit, um, it, it did plunge humanity into the darkness of sin. But more than that, it subjected all of reality to uh, corruption and futility. And what that means is that ever, ever since that moment, uh, human beings have been living in this constant state of tension a tension between the life that we actually live and the life that we want to live. A tension between the reality that we experience, which is one of, of loss, of, of frustration, of disappointment, of hurt, of death, and the life that we would want to live, which is a life of peace, a life of, of healing and joy and, and life. And no matter how hard we try, and we've, we've tried pretty hard, uh, we have not been able to eliminate this tension. If you think about all of you know, the human endeavors in human history, it's all been to try to make things better. And things have gotten better to a certain extent, but the tension exists. Uh, even for those human beings that have amassed, you know, enough resources to be very comfortable in this life, the tension exists because even they cannot control things like sickness and death. So when you think of your life, is it not true that there is a sense of tension that there's a, a disconnect between the, the reality that you would want to live in and the one, in fact, that is, that is before you. Uh, I came across this, this sentence uh, in this essay I was reading uh, this week. Uh, it was a, a personal essay, essay by this uh, woman named Anne Apachet, his author. 
And she was just telling the story of her family, in particular, uh, the story of her stepfather, um, uh, Mike, and, and the last parts of his life, how he died. And this sentence just, uh, it stuck out to me. I'll put it on the, on the screen there for you. Uh, she said this of Mike. Mike spent his last two years living with his oldest daughter, Tina, who gave him all the love and attention he had denied her as a child. Now just look at, look at that for a minute. Think of that sentence. Think of all that is wrapped up in that sentence. All of the hurt, all of the neglect, all of the longing. It, it struck me that all of us have sentences like this in our life. In fact, we have, we have tons of them. Tons of sentences that could... Uh, rightly describe our life, a life of longing, a life of disappointment, a life where things didn't work out the way that we wanted them to. Do you know that the Bible acknowledges this kind of hurt? It shows the, the reason for it, but it also shows the way forward. See, the, the beautiful thing about the way that this story ends, this end of the beginning, is that it ends with a, with a glorious picture of a reality that is very different from the one that we live. In fact, we're going to look uh, this week and next week at uh, Revelation 21, a little bit of 22. And in these last two chapters of the Bible, we get this glorious picture of heaven. And in heaven, what we see is that all of the tension of this life is gone. And all of the longings of our heart are completely fulfilled. And this is important, I think, because one of the mistakes we can make as Christians, if you're here this morning, you're following Christ, you consider yourself a believer, I think a lot of the times... Uh, we have a very underdeveloped view of heaven. And so what that means is that we're, we're hoping in this, this thing, this, this reality that is to come, and yet we haven't really got a great grasp of what it means in detail. So sometimes our, our view of it is very cliched. In fact, the world would look at heaven and see a lot of cliché there, a lot of superficiality. But the Bible doesn't talk about heaven that way. It gives us a lot of detail, emotional, psychological, real detail of what it will be like to live in this perfect existence. So we're going to look at Revelation 21, a couple of passages, not the whole thing today, but a couple of chunks, and we're going to see how it is that um, heaven is described by the word of God itself. So we're going to begin uh, in verse 1 of chapter 21. Remember, this is a vision given to John. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters... And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're going to pause there. So very clearly, this is a biblical vision of heaven. Uh, what's actually called the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, you can see here that this is a real place. 
It's not just some spiritual ethereal kind of existence. Right now when we die, we know our souls are separated from our body. Heaven is a spiritual place. But here we see that the, the body and soul are brought back together. And it's a physical place. There's a grand city, which, which has symbolic meaning, but also seems to be a real place where, where people are living. There's a community of faith. All of the Christians, all of the believers for all time, from all places are brought together. The bride of Christ made perfect and pure and holy. We are all there living together. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, why, why is this heaven so great? Like what hope do we have that this reality will be one without tension, without any longing? And so we're going to look uh, in detail in, into this passage and one more before we're done. And actually, uh, we're going to do this this week and next week, like I, like I said. And we're going to uh, divide things up into two categories. I was reading a, a commentary by Daryl Johnson, and uh, he, he divided up sort of the things we know about heaven into two categories, which I thought was helpful. So this week, we're going to look and see what is not in heaven. And then next week, we're going to look and see what is in heaven. And both, I think, will lead us to a better appreciation of, of what heaven actually is and what it tells us about God himself. So here's our key question for today. What will not be in heaven? And the first thing uh, that we find, uh, maybe surprisingly, is, is it says there will be no sea in heaven. No sea in heaven. Here's verse 1. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now there are those that would interpret this to say, look, there will actually be no oceans in heaven. That that's what this is, this is saying. We'll just take it literally and say that God's going to remake the entire planet and so there will be no oceans anymore. That, that could be the case. We, we don't know for sure. Although I think those uh, who live in Hawaii or California who love surfing will be kind of disappointed. Um, there could be heavenly wave machines. So it doesn't mean there'll be no surfing at all. If that's your view, that's fine. But I think there's something deeper being uh, said here. Because the sea, for those, remember, this is written to a church in the first century um, for them, what the sea brought to mind was uh, chaos, was the sense of, of overwhelming power that could not be controlled. I mean, the sea back in those days, uh, that's where the mighty storms would, would gather and wreak havoc on the coastal towns. Uh, that's where there would be these sea monsters, as they would describe them, these leviathans that were uh, quite possibly giant squids or whales, things that they couldn't fathom. They were, they were big, they were chaotic, they couldn't control them. Revelation 13 says that the sea is where the beast emerges. And so what you get if you kind of put this together is this sense that when it says there will be no, the sea will be no more, is that there will at the very least be a reality in which chaos no longer reigns. Or there will be peace and there will be order. So just think for a moment. What I'm really hoping today is that as we consider these things, we will try to cast our minds forward to think of what it will be like to live in this new reality. A reality where all of the destructive forces that plague us right now, uh, uh, natural disasters like earthquakes, tsunamis, avalanches, pandemics, they will not be there anymore. It will not be a plague on our existence. The way that things tend to fall apart right now, like financial collapse, like our family falling apart at times, the, these, these negative spiritual uh, attacks and influences will be gone. Satan and his demons cast into the lake of fire. And reality itself will be a reality of perfect peace, perfect order. Which makes sense. Because we're told very clearly that our God is a God of perfect peace and perfect order. It, it makes sense to know that, but we also know we haven't really experienced that yet. 
And yet we see here, the very beginning is, look, when we're thinking of heaven, we should imagine a place in which we wake up every morning and we're at peace. And there's nothing that is threatening to, to take that away. This is a huge step towards the reality that we hope for. This is, this is a huge step away from the reality that we live right now, that, that we should know that in heaven, chaos will no longer reign because God himself, the God of heaven and earth, the new heaven and the new earth, the God of peace, is the one who will completely organize and orchestrate our reality without the evil that plagues us today. So firstly, there is no sea, no chaos. Secondly, there are no tears. One thing that defines our reality right now is, is tears. Tears of sorrow, tears of mourning, tears of pain, tears of heartache. We, we cry a little bit at times, we weep at times, we sob. I heard a story this week of a family in, in Nicaragua, a husband and wife. Um, they were being persecuted by the government because they had spoken out against the, the violence and, and oppressiveness of the regime there. Uh, the husband had already been arrested once and tortured once, and they were, they were fearful of their lives. Uh, more than that, they were worried about their daughter, had like a grade school age daughter. And so they decided that probably what they needed to do was to leave their daughter with, with friends, somewhere safe, and they were going to go into hiding. And so uh, the husband was telling the story. It had been two months since they had left their daughter. And he said, you know, my wife has been crying pretty much ever since. That because of what was going on in their life, there is just a constant state of sorrow. We, we can understand that. I don't think many of us have experienced that. But we are very, very familiar with tears for all sorts of reasons. So just think of what it would be like to live in a reality where there is no reason to cry anymore. I mean, that's what we're told. Look at verse 4 uh, again. It says of Jesus, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So no suffering, no oppression, no sorrow, no depression, no injury, no death. As I was thinking about it, I mean, this would be fantastic even just for a day, but I think the real benefit of living in this kind of reality that we'll really feel it um, as things go on, like year after year after year. Because the thing about tears is that the, the tears that we cry are not just an emotional response to the pain that we're experiencing. What it means is our tears, our pain, they, they mark us, they shape us. I mean, the things that we've experienced, the difficulties we've experienced, we carry that hurt for us into our future. It shapes us as individuals. Uh, I was speaking to a, a family recently. Uh, we were meeting them for the first time, and this, um, uh, they'd adopted the uh, kids. Mom was telling me about their children, said, yeah, we adopted them when they were in grade school. And uh, she was just explaining to me, yeah, they, they still uh, struggle a lot, she said. They, they struggle to connect emotionally with others, uh, socially. And she said it's because of all the trauma that they've experienced when they were very young. And we, we know that that is true of human beings. That some of the greatest scars that we carry are not physical. They're emotional. They're, they're psychological. And yet what's also true, the good news about us, even in this world, even right now, is that the, the flip side is also true. To the extent that we experience consistent love and grace and care, it brings healing into our lives. I mean, that's the hopefulness of, of adoption. 
this husband and wife are, are hoping that over the next 10, 15 years of being able to raise these kids that all of their love and care and support will bring healing where there was hurt, that the scars will be healed. So if that's true of us here and now, imagine what it will be like for us to live in a reality where we've experienced love and care and healing for, for years. I mean, think of what it will be like to live for 50 years without ever feeling physical pain. That whatever chronic pain you're dealing with, however much it frustrates you, that you just will, will be gone. Imagine, imagine 500 years without ever experiencing depression or sorrow or loss. I mean, think of what that will do to our mind and to our heart. Think of how we will grow in our capacity for love and for joy and for worship. I mean, I know that's not what we're living, you know, that's not the life we're living right now. But this is important for us to see for two reasons. One, it's helpful to know that what we're experiencing now won't last forever. But it's also helpful to realize that all the peace and healing that will be ours in heaven, we actually have a foretaste of it here and now. That, 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 that it's not absent. In fact, God is at work. The gospel, that the God of life has come and does bring healing and redemption even into the pain right now. And so when we learn more and more about heaven, what we hopefully see is that God is still at work even now. And that should encourage us to, to remain faithful, to be thankful, and also to look forward to the glories of heaven when the, the final tear, we step into the presence of heaven. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to cry tears of joy, but the sorrow, the hurt, the heartache will, will be gone. All that tension will be removed by the grace of God. Okay, the third thing we see is that there will not just be no sea, no tears, but thirdly, there will be no sin. And for this, we're going to look to verses seven and eight, where it says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the, the lake of fire that burns. So uh, on the surface of it, what you might take from this is simply, look, bad people won't be there in heaven. I mean, that's essentially what it's saying. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that in heaven, as we think about it, it will be a reality without sin, without sinners. I mean, it has to be. If it's going to be perfect and wonderful, you can't have people cheating and lying and committing sexual morality. It wouldn't make sense. But the thing that we can't forget is that it's not like just all the good people get into heaven. Heaven will be full of bad people who were saved by the grace of God and their, their slate of sin was wiped clean and they gained entrance into heaven. That's all of us. All of us, as we saw last week, are rightly deserving of condemnation and yet some of us, by the grace of God, have experienced the, the renewal of faith in Christ that he has taken away all of our sin and so we gain entrance into heaven. Sin is no more. Our, our, our flesh, in a sense, is no more. We experience perfect sinlessness with Christ. It's a beautiful, amazing picture of reality. But there's something else here that I think is helpful for us to see um, for our lives here and now. Because it isn't just, I mean, it's giving us a picture of what it will be like. But I think also it's... Uh, it's encouraging us to pursue that even now. Because look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. Conquers. What that language is saying there is, it's saying the one who perseveres in faith here and now. 
The one who conquers the sin in their life. The one who conquers the the darkness and the, the immorality. The one who perseveres in faith. That is the one who will end up in heaven. Why? Because that is the one who demonstrates genuine faith. In fact, we see this over and over again. In the New Testament, this call not just to to profess faith in Christ, but to live it out. Uh, Here's Paul's words to Timothy when he says this uh, this very thing in uh, 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 13. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, greed, idolatry, pride, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. His point is, Timothy, it's not just enough to profess faith. We need to persevere in the faith. And here we see why. I mean, it's partly because it shows that our faith is real. It's partly because it honors God. But also, we see here that it's making us ready for the future heavenly reality without sin. If you think about the the direction of your life, when you come to faith, it should change completely. We should now be marked by a desire for holiness and for, for purity. We should be making ourselves, by the grace of God, by the power of God, not our power, we should be making ourselves fit for heaven. So that when we arrive, I mean, we feel right at home. See, here's the thing I've noticed about the things in life that I really enjoy. Uh, I really enjoy, especially um, physical activities, when I'm fit for them, when I'm ready for them. Um, I can remember back uh, to a time when, well, way back when I really loved skiing. Uh, Growing up, skied all the time, uh, just really enjoyed being up on the mountain. It was fantastic. And then, uh, you know, family and kids happened, and there was not as much skiing uh, anymore, sadly. But uh, when I was teaching... There's a ski program. And so I found myself all of a sudden up on a mountain, a local mountain. All my kids were somewhere. I don't know where they were. They were off somewhere in a class, I hope. And, and I had the opportunity to ski. And I was so excited. I was like, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this. Came to a black you know, run. And um, you could imagine what happened because it had been about eight years since I'd actually skied. So I flew down uh, the slopes, hit the moguls, pulled something. And for the rest of the day, I kind of hobbled around. I wasn't ready. I wasn't fit for that activity. So I did not enjoy it. Now listen, we're, we're going to be getting into heaven by the grace of God. It's not us who makes ourselves ready, but, but there's something about this idea of making ourselves fit for the things of God. There's this constant exhortation for us to, to be ready for that heavenly reality. Maybe here's a good way to think of it. If you think about the way you're living your life right now, what is it making you ready for? Is it making you ready for more of this life? more of this reality with all of its sin and immorality and corruption? Or is it making you fit for heaven? Will you step into the presence of God and and be right at home because God has already purified you through your effort, through the power of the Holy Spirit? That, That is what we're being called to, that we would be conquerors by the grace of God, that we would go to battle with the sin in our life and the darkness around us that we would be ready to enjoy Jesus fully when we see him face to face. That's the third thing. There'll be no sin in heaven. We should pursue that reality in our life even now. For the next uh, three, we're going to first read uh, another passage. So I'm going to jump all the way to verse 22 of Revelation 21. Again, it will be up on the screen. And again, this is the vision that John receives from Jesus. He says this, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple 
is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, what do we see here? Well, number four, the fourth thing that is not in heaven is that um, there's no temple. There's no temple in heaven. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now for us, this is not uh, that big a deal probably because we don't have a temple today. We're not used to it. But for the, the original recipients of this letter, that would have been a huge deal. Because for the Jewish believers at the time, if they thought of the kingdom of heaven, they would definitely have thought that there would be a temple there because the temple signified the presence of God. That was the whole way that they interacted. That was the, where uh, sin was atoned for. It's where they felt the intimacy of God, the presence of God. That's why the destruction of the temple in the Old Testament and in 70 AD was such a huge blow uh, to the Jewish culture. So even the, the Jews who had come to faith would have thought in their mind, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. There'll be a gleaming temple. It'll be wonderful. It'll be like a return to the golden age of Israel. But what we see here is, in fact, that's not what it will be like. It will be better. It'll be better because instead of there being one place in the city of God where you can come and you can be in the presence of God, the whole city will be the temple. God himself will be our temple. The whole reality that we experience in heaven will be like that of going into the temple, into the holy of holies into being into the presence of a holy God, it will be like that all the time. Uh, in verse 3, we read this before, but here it is again. Uh, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, this should be encouraging to us because the truth of the matter is that part of the tension of our life right now is that we don't always feel close to God. I mean, even for those of us uh, who are Christians, uh, even for those of us who, who know in our mind, look, God has sent us the Spirit of God to dwell within us. And Jesus has said he will never leave us. But I'm not sure about you. There's definitely times where I have said things like, I, I just, I don't know what it is. I do not feel close to God right now. Uh, I feel dry spiritually. I mean, I know that is theologically not the case that God has left me, but I, the experience of it is something that I'm longing for. Do you see here that in heaven we'll never feel like that? But we'll always feel this, this intimacy with Christ. Maybe put another way, if you can think of a time where you really felt in the presence of God, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it was a time of worship, a time of prayer, a time of repentance, and you just felt like, Lord, whatever you ask me, I'm going to do it. I'm full of faith, full of the Spirit of God. We'll feel like that all the time. It'll be overwhelming, I think, to think of how close we will be with the, the God of creation. So the good news for us is twofold. One, that is coming for us by the grace of God. But two, we can experience the presence of God here and now. We don't have to wait. It is true that the Spirit of God has been sent to convict us of sin, to lead us into truth, and to bring the presence of God to us here and now. So praise God that in heaven there will be no temple, no need for it, because we will be close with the Lord. And we can start with that today. The fifth thing that is not in heaven is this, um, 
there will be no closed gates. No closed gates. Look at verse 25. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Uh, so again, for the first century, you know, people reading this, this would have been very uh, impactful because they knew a lot about gates. Gates were significant for them. Uh, there were a lot of threats in their world. Out in the wilderness, there were thieves, there were marauders, there were enemy nations. So the only way for people to feel safe was to have a walled city and a good set of gates. And at night, they would put the gates down and have guards there, and then people could sleep safe and sound. Uh, the only reason that you would not put the gates down is if there were no threats. So think about that. That's what this is saying. That in heaven, there will be no need to ever close the gates. That there will be no threats that exist. And I don't just mean physical threats. This isn't just saying that in heaven, you know, we'll be able to leave our doors unlocked, that no one's going to come and rob us. That is true. But it's signifying more than that. Because if you think about the threats that exist in our life, they are the source of our anxiety. And human beings, we, by and large, are an anxious lot. I mean, many of us struggle with, with anxiety in every area of life. And that's because as we look to the things in our life, even the small things that, that go a little bit wrong, right away in our mind, we fill in the gap and think, man, this could go horribly wrong. Uh, uh, something wrong with our car, a sound, we think, well, the engine's probably gone. I'm going to have to buy a new car. I don't, I don't have money for a new car. What am I going to do? All of a sudden, the worries and anxieties, they pile up. Someone doesn't text us back. And we think, see, I knew it. They hate me. They never liked me, right? And then we start thinking about all of the reasons why people hate us and dislike us. We worry upon worry. If we see something wrong with our body, we think it's, it's got to be cancer. I'm sure it is. We, we're filled with these anxieties. Why? Because these things really exist in our world and because they do happen to people and because we have this proclivity to think it's going to happen to us. But here's the thing. It's hard for us to imagine, but imagine waking up every morning and, and there are no threats at all in our life. I mean, we just know that this day nothing is going to go wrong. No one is, is going to do something or say something to, to take away our, our joy our physical health is assured. There's, there's no threats. That's what's being communicated here. This city is a city where everyone is completely secure. Which I'm not sure about you, but having struggled with insecurity a lot of my life, this, this is tough to comprehend. And yet so, so compelling to think that that would be the life that I live every day. Never doubtful. Never worried always at peace. And the reason for this is because, because God is sovereign. Jesus is the king and he reigns supreme. All the threats have been dealt with. There, there's nothing left. And here's the other amazing thing. Remember, we're trying to see connections between this future reality of heaven and our reality today. The reality today is that Jesus still reigns supreme. He is still Lord over heaven and earth. And we are told so many times in scripture that we need not fear. In fact, we're told that perfect love casts out fear. And we're told this in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? These things is like everything that could, bad that could possibly happen to us. Anything bad that could happen to us. What are we to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? What an amazing declaration of faith rooted in the character of God, the power of God. And even though we only experience it, that in part, 
The hope of heaven is that there will be a day when we experience it fully, where we breathe out and there's no butterflies in our stomach, there's no misgivings, there's no worries. We're just totally at peace, totally at rest. And we enjoy God fully and completely. It's going to be amazing. Okay, there's one more. One more, and that's this. Number six. In heaven, there is no need for the sun or moon. Here's Revelation uh, 21, 23 to 24. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So notice here, it's not saying there is no sun or moon. I think there will still be a solar system going on that would mess it up if the sun and moon were gone. What it's saying is there's no need for it because God himself, God the Father, God the Son, they're just filling reality with their glorious and transcendent light. And light here, I don't think just means physical light, although whenever you see a glimpse of the throne room of God throughout the Bible, there's always this light that people are shielding their eyes. It's so bright. But it's also the the spiritual light, the warmth and the love of God. Now, this is difficult for us to grasp, of course, to to imagine this. But I think the comparison with the sun is helpful. Because if you think about what the sun does for us in terms of our planet, the sun is the source of life. Its light and its warmth brings energy to the world. Without it, we would just be a dead planet. Uh, In fact, I was... um, what came to my mind was this National Geographic special I was watching. Uh, I forget which one it was, but uh, it was looking at these, uh, these pools in the mountains of Pat- Patagonia. And in these pools, uh, there's this marvelous ecosystem. And uh, the, the way that it works, just because of where they are and the, the way the sun works on them, this little ecosystem swings between extreme cold in the middle of the night and extreme heat. So they kind of started the episode in the early morning hours and, and there's this pool and everything just looks, I mean, totally frozen. The, the lake is frozen. All the grass is frozen. There's crystals and everything. There's no life at all. And you realize that in the middle of the lake, there's birds there, but they're all frozen into the lake. I mean, nothing seems alive. And then when the sun comes up, everything starts to fall. And there's this incredible warmth that happens. And before long, there's all these animals that are coming out of everywhere. The birds themselves crack out of the ice and they're flamingos. I'm not making this up. There's flamingos that I thought they were like tropical, but they're there. And before long, they're frolicking. It's just teeming with life. And that's because the sun, the sun brings the energy and the warmth. And I think that's a good picture of what it will be like in heaven. That there will be this abundance of light, this abundance of life, this warmth thawing out all of the the frigid realities of the darkness of our life. Because the truth of the matter is that right now, darkness reigns. Not ultimately, but in the terms of the way that we experience this life. In fact, John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This gets to the heart of why we experience this tension in our world and in our lives because we love darkness. In fact, there's many of us, even those who, who profess faith in Christ, we've made peace with the darkness. There's areas of sin, areas of heartache, areas of wrong against us, and we've just decided, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just going to accept that darkness in my life. In fact, there are many of us who come to the point of thinking, you know what, things are, are really not going to get better. 
I'm no longer going to try to repent of sin. I can't find victory over it. I'm no longer going to push back against this oppressive darkness I feel. I'm no longer going to try to grab onto the light because this is all I know. And yet what the Bible says is that does not define us as people of faith. There is a reality coming in which the light of God will shine into every crevice of our being and will fill us with light and warmth. And that is how the story ends. It began with us plunging ourselves into darkness, but it ends with a glorious light, the light of God. A good picture of it is that that breaking of dawn when all of the cold hardness and darkness of the night is gone. In fact, Psalm 30, verse 5 says this, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you realize that every moment in heaven will be filled with the possibility and wonder and glory and light of a, of a new morning? And it will lead us over and over again to experience joy and worship and the love of God. What's very clear is that the tension of this world will be gone. And the longings of our heart will be filled. And we will be in the presence of Jesus himself. And we will want for nothing. And we will rejoice in our reality, in our life, and in our God over and over and over again. So listen, I I know that's not a reality now. And I know for some of us, we're listening to this and thinking that sounds great, but it just seems so far off. Do you see that, that, that there's a connection between the work of God in our lives even now and where he is calling us to. That even now, God is at work. Even now, the light of Christ is shining into our world and into our lives through the gospel, through the spirit of God. This is a call for us to grab hold of heaven in a a much more tangible way than maybe we have before, but also a call for us to pursue the things of God, anticipating the reality that he has prepared for us. So, this is only partway through. There's more to come next week. Hope you're excited for that. And I hope that these things will circulate and percolate in your mind and your heart and that we will be encouraged this week. So let me pray for us and, uh, and then we'll worship. Lord God, I'm thankful. Thankful that you saw fit to give us this clear vision of heaven. God, I pray. I pray that we would not lose sight of it. I pray that we would not let the darkness of our lives eclipse it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be a people of faith a people, Lord, who who grab hold of the eternal life that you've given us, that we would not just profess faith, but we would would, uh, persevere in it and conquer the darkness in our life by your grace. I pray especially, Lord, for those that, that wouldn't say they've come to faith yet. I pray that, Lord, that you would move in their hearts to bring the hope of heaven to them as well. And Lord, would you, would you help us in those times of great discouragement, those times of mourning, those times of, of weeping, the, the times of anxiety, Lord, would you remind us of the truth that you are already at work and God, that you have prepared a place for us, a place of perfect peace and perfect joy, one that we will be close with you forever and Lord, that our joy will be full. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.